Hi, Casey here. Before we start, our team at PassBlue wants you to know that we're a nonprofit website and we depend on your generous donations to tell stories about the UN. Next month, PassBlue will take part in Newsmatch, a national matching gift campaign that drives donations to nonprofit newsrooms like us around the country. Here's how it works. Starting November 1st, Newsmatch will double your donation up to $1,000. For a nonprofit like us, this is a big deal and will help us report exclusive stories at the UN every day. The type of journalism we do that puts accountability first cannot wait. Because if we don't tell these stories, who will? Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Filio. And welcome to Unscripted. Today, the Cold War returns to the UN as Russia and Iran disrupt committee work to protest visa denials by the United States. And Passblue obtained an exclusive letter signed by more than a thousand civil society groups to UN women, expressing concerns about its seeming bias regarding the decriminalization of sex work. This is the seventh episode of Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. This week, I'm co-hosting with Sona Lee. You may remember her from our UNGA recap. She covered the Climate Action Summit. Sona's joining us today to discuss with Stephanie her exclusive story about the visa issues between Russia, Iran, and the United States. This is our biggest story of the year so far. Hi, Sona. Hi, Casey. So at the UN this month, everyone has been focused on Turkey. President Erdogan has launched an attack in Syria, allegedly to combat terrorists there, creating chaos in the region. And the Security Council has had little ability to react one way or the other. Right. And reporters have been covering Turkey's actions closely. U.S. President Donald Trump has been criticized for his decision to take U.S. troops out of the Kurdish-held region after Erdogan told him he was going to attack. And a few days after that, Trump and Erdogan agreed on a five-days ceasefire agreement in the region, which ended on Tuesday. It's unclear what's going to happen next. And Russia was quick to fill the void left by the U.S. in Syria. And here at the U.N., Russia seems to have used the power vacuum left by the U.S. to disrupt crucial General Assembly committees, while few reporters were watching. For a few weeks now, Russia and Iran, supported by a small group of other countries, have been teaming up to disrupt committee work on disarmament, for example. Our own Stephanie Filion broke the story. So, Stephanie, how did you find out about the story? So, I was walking around the UN one day, and I ran into the chair of the first committee, Ambassador Sacha Laurenti of Bolivia. And he looked kind of tense. But then again, everyone on the first committee tends to look tense. We talked for a bit, and he told me that he was doing well, but was having trouble with the committee because of U.S. visa issues that Iran and Russia are facing. I was kind of intrigued by the situation because the first committee deals with disarmament. It has nothing to do with visas. So I did some digging to figure out what was going on, and more importantly, to find out why Iran and Russia picked that committee to disrupt. So for days, Russia and Iran have tried to stop the committee from adopting its program of work or agenda. The delay by Russia and Iran have created problems for other member states who are used to just doing business as usual, discussing disarmament, not visas. 
And I quickly found out that the bigger picture was much more important than that. So that's interesting that visas came up in that conversation, especially because before the UN General Assembly in September, many Iranian diplomats weren't going to get their visas on time to come to New York, but the State Department delivered them at the last minute. And a number of Russian diplomats also had their visas denied. And Moscow made a big deal of it in Russian and foreign media. We even reported it. So, Stephanie, how have these visa denials affected work at the UN? Let me tell you, it's more than just diplomats being barred from coming. Bilateral relations between the U.S. and Iran and the U.S. and Russia are overshadowing and affecting the UN's work. And now the other 190 countries are involved. They've been delaying committee work because of the visas, forcing other countries to take a stance on this when they really don't want to take a side. It feels like the Cold War all over again. When I was reporting the story, nobody wanted to talk about it on the record, and I felt like it was because it's an issue involving the United States. So you're saying visa issues have taken center stage in a committee that has nothing to do with it. Because the first committee deals with disarmament issues, and that includes cybersecurity, nuclear weapons, outer space, and weapons of mass destruction, not visas. Yes, and at the beginning of committee work in September, members lost three days in order to find a solution to the delays in the work of the committee. Considering they have only four to six weeks to get the work done, every day counts, and they wasted a considerable amount of time. So is it only the first committee that was disrupted by Russia and Iran over these visas? No, they also targeted the sixth committee on legal matters. This one makes more sense because it deals directly with visa issues. The General Assembly Committee on Relations with Host Countries reports to the sixth committee. So why the Committee on Disarmament then? Well, the explanation I was able to find is that a few months ago, there was a conference preparing the 2020 conference on disarmament in Washington, and a number of Russian diplomats did not get visas to attend this event either. The tensions built up, and in September in New York, Russia was fed up, and it found a partner in Iran who's also affected by visa restraints. So the countries say they want their fair share of participation in the committee to be able to send their delegates to the UN in New York. The U.S. has historically denied visas to many diplomats from countries it considers hostile to Washington, and for security reasons, of course, but we'll come back to this later. Russia has tried for a while to bring up this issue, saying it is not being represented as well as it should be, and has even put a motion forward in the first committee to move future committee meetings to the U.N.'s office in Geneva or Vienna. Well, Geneva makes sense, right? I mean, that's where the Conference on Disarmament takes place three times a year. And many experts dealing with this issue are stationed in Geneva. So on that, Russia may have a point. But countries are used to this way of working. Also, moving the committee could be expensive. And considering the cash flow crisis the UN is in, I don't think it would be a priority for the Secretary General to move a committee because of a spat among three countries even though a spokesperson for the Secretary General told me that ultimately the decision to move is in the hands of member states. So how do the other member states feel about that? For now, not many of them agree. Only 16 countries voted in favor of Iran's motion to delay the adoption of the program of work of these committees. That includes countries like Venezuela, China, Cuba, and Syria. So it sounds like Russia and Iran are trying to make more noise than anything else. They kind of are. 
But they're also trying to bring light to an issue that's been affecting many countries for decades. Representative of other countries on the first committee I met with also said they really do feel sorry about the visa situation and that the issue should be solved, but that the first committee just isn't the right platform to talk about it. And what they're doing is completely counterproductive. So what is the core argument Russia and Iran are making about visas? They are basically arguing that the U.S., by denying so many visas and making it more difficult for their diplomats to do their jobs, that they're breaching the headquarters agreement. That's a contract that the U.N. signed with the U.S. to make sure that the work is getting done and every country is treated equally at the U.N. This agreement was signed in 1947. But that same year, the U.S. Congress approved a joint resolution allowing the U.S. to restrict visas for security concerns. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, Stephanie will tell us about some controversial cases of the U.S. denying visas to officials from places it didn't get along with. Support for Unscripted comes from the Institute of International Humanitarian Affairs at Fordham University. This fall, they're offering online humanitarian training courses. Topics include forced migration, managing or negotiating humanitarian responses, and more. Courses run from October 21st through December 1st. Or earn an international diploma in humanitarian assistance. It's a four-week intensive taught by practicing humanitarian professionals in Geneva, Switzerland, from November 17th through December 12th. For more information, email miha at fordham.edu. Unlike New York, for the UN headquarters in Geneva, countries don't face nearly as many issues getting visas for diplomats. The United States claims it has to do with security matters. They don't want to let in foreign officials or diplomats who could be spies or a threat to the United States. But the thing is, the United States can't unveil personal details about why they are not granting a visa. And it also means that in the past, the U.S. has interpreted the headquarters agreement with some flexibility. A member of a country that also had visas denied in the past and that supports the Russia-Iran initiative told us that they feel like the U.S. is using the visas as a political tool. That's a good point. The U.S. has a power almost no other country has on Earth. They host the main headquarters of the United Nations. But a former high-ranking committee member that dealt with visas told me he doesn't think that the U.S. is using this issue as a political tool. But because the U.S. has broad discretion interpreting the agreement, he said it is sometimes difficult to conclude whether there has been a violation or not. But this hasn't just happened under President Trump's administration, right? Yes, it happened sporadically since the U.N.'s funding. Under Obama, for example, there was a famous and controversial case of the U.S. denying a visa to an Iranian ambassador because he had been involved in the seizure of the American embassy in Iran in 1979. But the most famous case is probably under President Reagan denying a visa to PLO leader Yasser Arafat in 1988 because the Palestinian Liberation Organization was considered a terrorist organization at the time. The PLO had been invited to the General Assembly as an observer. Now that's interesting, especially considering Arafat went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize a few years after. So what happened when they denied his visa? The UN Host Country Committee condemned the U.S. for its decision. 
which was followed up with a resolution denouncing the U.S. in the General Assembly. It was adopted almost unanimously, except for the U.S. and Israel. The Secretary General at the time even got involved. But every case is different. And this time, it's not only about one person, it's dozens of diplomats. So how is the UN dealing with it? So the solution the Sixth Committee found that also inspired the First Committee to do the same was to adopt part of the program little by little. That's unusual. But that's what they had to do to be able to work. The host country committee will look at the issue. A member told me that they are expecting a heated debate, but that they'll talk with affected countries behind closed doors to find a solution. What specific restrictions are at the top of their list? So right now, some Iranian diplomats can go only within three miles radius of the UN, unless they get a waiver. And it raises a bunch of questions. If your hotel, your residence, your doctor, your children's schools are outside of that three miles radius, what do you do? So the committee is trying to find a solution for that. But the report of the host country committee only provides suggestions. And the implementation is the important part. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Now, Sona, there's another past blue story that was really big this month, and it has to do with a widening split between feminists in the global north and south over decriminalizing sex work, or as some people still call it, prostitution. Yes, the story is by Barbara Crissette, a former New York Times foreign correspondent and now contributing editor to Past Blue. She was given an exclusive preview of a protest letter written by the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women. It was eventually signed by more than 1,300 individuals and organizations in 60 countries. So this letter was sent to the executive director of UN Women, Fumzili Malambo Nka. What was in it? These groups are concerned about transparency in planning the next Commission on the Status of Women conference and other meetings next year, particularly who gets to participate in the controversial debates about decriminalizing sex work. Some groups that work against trafficking and voices from developing countries that oppose decriminalizing sex work say they will not be adequately represented at these meetings, and that groups that do support legalization will be overrepresented. And this year's CSW is especially important because it's the 25th anniversary of the groundbreaking Beijing Women's Rights Conference. And something to watch for with this issue is what terms people use. Folks who are pro-decriminalization tend to say sex work, while those who are opposed still say prostitution. It's an important distinction, but not a surprising one. CSW is known for long debates about single words and even punctuation. Speaking of punctuation, if you want to read the stories we discussed in this episode, they're available on our website, passblue.com. Sona, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This episode was produced by me, Casey Candela, co-hosted by Sona Lee and reported by Stephanie Fillion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Pass Blue is covering the important news from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. 
Past Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Past Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.